welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and this week we're taking a look back at one attempt to branch into television by one of the world's longest enduring comedy properties. One of my personal favorites, Mad Magazine. Think for two special magazine episode hitting good. We'll worry about that later. Now, first, I can't talk about something that Mad did for television without mentioning the publication itself. So let's take a brief look at the history of the magazine, which actually really wasn't even a magazine until its 24th issue. In October 1952, EC Comics, with William Gaines at the helm, added to its line of publications by launching a humorous comic book to go along with its other titles. At at the time, it was doing a lot of horror and war and science fiction. Uh, Tales from the Crypt was one of its most famous titles at that time. Now, Mad Number 1 began with Harvey Kurtzman serving as editor, and he was also the writer and illustrator of most of the material in that first issue. Also contributing to the comic were legendary artists like Wally Wood and Will Elder. Now I should mention too, Mad Magazine has its own app, and so if you download that, I believe they still give you Mad Number 1 for free. So if you ever wanted to know what was in that first issue, uh, you can pretty much just check it out for yourself. Now readership began to grow and it spawned many competitors, but by 1954, people really started looking into the content of comic books and even citing them as having a negative effect on children. And this became serious business. William Gaines was even brought in to testify before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, and as you can imagine, it did not go very well. As a result, Gaines was now viewed as America's most amoral publisher. Now at this time, a group called the Comics Magazine Association of America was formed as a way of the comics publishers to regulate their own content. And this would kind of be like an alternative to governmental regulation. So material was submitted, and if it passed its code of ethics and standards, it received the Comics Code seal. Which, if you've seen any comics from the 50s all the way to the 90s and early 2000s, you've most likely seen it on the cover. Just kind of a a white rectangle with almost like stamp-like edges. And it would always appear there. So now, all of EC's comics had to change their gory, scary, or in the case of Mad, its humorous content to fit a very strict code. So now William Gaines was on the verge of financial ruin, his editor, Harvey Kurtzman, was just ready to jump to another publication at this point. So to salvage his successful title, Mad, and keep Kurtzman on board, Gaines had the brilliant idea of converting Mad the comic book into Mad the magazine. So starting with issue number 24, that was July 1955, Mad widened its pages to a magazine format, thereby bypassing any comics code restrictions and continuing its zany and satirical takes on modern life and culture. So, hey, you can't regulate a comic book because we're wider paper now and we're a magazine. This is pretty great. So even though now, today, it's published by DC Comics and it's only six issues a year, it still continues. Over the years, many great artists have graced its pages, such as Antonio Prohias in his great Spy vs. Spy, Dave Berg with The Lighter Side Of, 
Uh, of course, the hilarious tiny drawings in the margins by Sergio Aragones, and, and many, many more. And of course, no issue of Mad Magazine is complete without a fold-in on the inside of the back cover by Al Jaffe. Now, when we talk about Mad Magazine in television, some of you might be able to think of the times that Mad Magazine has made the leap into television. Most recently, there was the animated variety show Mad that ran on Cartoon Network from 2010 to 2013. And this was actually a really great kids show. It was right in the spirit of the magazine. And I say that in the sense that the sketches were quick, they varied in animation style, and it just reminded me of flipping through the pages of the magazine and seeing those different styles of art. It was really great. It was genuinely a funny show, had genuinely great satirical takes on pop culture, and it was kind of a, a show for an entire family to watch. Before that, of course, there was Fox's long-running sketch comedy series, Mad TV, which, a few seasons into its run, really had nothing to do with the magazine, but at the beginning, it was very clear it was trying to reference its connection to the magazine pretty much at every possible opportunity. When it first started, the opening credits featured images and visuals from the magazine. Uh, some of the sketches were separated by animated versions of the Mad Magazine comic Spy vs. Spy, which those were great, I love those. And there were also even cartoons based on the work of longtime Mad artist Don Martin. And even Alfred E. Newman, the magazine's iconic, I guess you'd call him a mascot, made a very weird live-action cameo in the pilot. And when I say live-action, I mean some pretty weird face makeup on the poor actor. Even on the printed side of things, Mad published a special Mad TV issue, and it featured, instead of drawings or comic strips, it was screenshots directly from the Mad TV pilot with word bubbles superimposed on them. I remember as a kid seeing it on the rack and looking through it and thinking, I already saw these. I don't want to buy this. And that's uh, an issue I never picked up. But as the seasons went along, the connection between Mad the Magazine and Mad the TV show was pretty much just the name. It started in 1995. It lasted all the way into 2008. And it's also worth mentioning, Mad TV has been revived for a new 15th season on the CW. For whatever reason. But what I'm going to share with you today goes even earlier than those two shows, all the way back to 1974, when Mad Magazine created an animated variety show pilot that was never shown on TV. The obscure and seldom seen, the Mad Magazine TV special. And this was, this was a strange one. I remember doing the research and actually discovering this thing, uh, which was kind of just shelved for years and, and finally did surface online, I was very surprised uh, to find out that such a thing exists. If you look online, there's many articles in which people will, from time to time, point it out and say, did you know this was a thing? You know, and check it out. Now, this was commissioned by the ABC network. It was intended to be the pilot episode of a, I guess, humorous animated variety show series. And like... Mad Magazine, it would feature various sketches and gags, and the material was going to be lifted from the magazine itself, or at least from the pilot anyway. It was written by longtime Mad writers Don Edwing, Larry Siegel, Stan Hart, Tom Koch, and Earl Dowd, and it was directed by Chris Ishii, Gordon Bellamy, and Jimmy Murakami. Now, just a note about Jimmy Murakami, 
He won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film a few years before this in 1968 for The Magic Pear Tree. And also notable is that the company that he helped form produced the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series. So this thing had some great directors, great writers, but there were some problems with the finished product. According to longtime mad writer Dick DiBartolo, the executives at ABC thought the humor was too crude and adult-oriented to air on their network. And in addition to their objections to the jokes, many companies balked at the idea of sponsoring a TV show that was really just poking fun at companies and products that advertised on TV. So basically, there was no way the show was getting the green light, and they tried to rebrand it as just a TV special. It was no longer a, a pilot for a long-running series. It was going to be a one-time deal, but even then, they shelved it and it never aired. But, fortunately, years later, it was made available online to watch. So, was this too crude for TV? Well, let's get right into it and find out. So we open on a Times Square-looking cityscape. It, it looks pretty run down, but of course at the time, Times Square uh, wasn't as nice as it is now. Now in the center of the frame, there's a building featuring neon lights and a billboard with the face of the iconic mascot of the magazine, Alfred E. Newman. Now let's just pause here for a moment. Now even if you've never read a page of Mad Magazine, there's a very good chance you know the character of Alfred E. Newman. He's the red-haired kid with freckles and the missing front tooth. Now, he has a very long and mysterious history. Even though Alfred E. Newman and Mad are inexorably linked, he predates the publication by decades, perhaps even the better part of a century. No one knows for sure. Now, his first appearance in Mad was in issue number 21. This was March 1955. At that time, when Mad was still a comic book, uh, for a little while, they'd had this run where every cover was kind of a play on something or disguised to look as something else. There's one that looks like a composition notebook so kids could sneak it into class. There is one that looks like a racing form. Uh, this one looked like an old catalog page. And Alfred's face appeared very, very tiny, maybe about a, only a half inch tall on the page, along with other faces. And this was supposed to be a little ad for masks. Alfred's face appeared as a mask for sale between Joseph Stalin and Marilyn Monroe, and underneath it just says, Idiot. Now, a little later, when Mad became a magazine, they used him a little bit here and there, but with not a, really a full-fleshed-out identity, and certainly not as the icon of the magazine. Uh, in Mad 24, he was just called Melvin Kosnowski, and even Melvin Sturdley on another page. You know, just two different names, two different pages. Uh, in later issues, he was called Mel Haney. Uh, in Mad 25, he was called Newman, but also Mel Haney. So th they had different names for this figure. Uh, his small appearance on the crowd of the cover of Mad number 27 was the first time he was ever shown in color. Now, finally, in December 1956, this was Mad Magazine number 30, Alfred E. Newman was given his first real cover portrait. His first real cover. It was done by the great classic mad artist Norman Mingo. The original portrait was sold at auction. Guess how much it went for? $203,150. Now on that cover, the words next to him underneath an elephant fighting a donkey read, Write-in candidate Alfred E. Newman says, What? Me worry? Which, by the way, that me worry or what, me worry, 
That was his catchphrase before even Mad started using him. He's such an old character. Uh, it goes so far back that no one can even take credit for creating him. He just had appeared in so many things and had been copied over and over. In fact, there was a book that came out detailing the history of Mad Magazine. It was called Completely Mad, A History of the Comic Book and Magazine. It was published in 1991. And it cites an advertisement for Atmore's Mincemeat, Genuine English Plum Pudding from 1895 as the earliest verified image of that boy character. But since then, an even older Alfred E. Newman type was found in an ad for the Broadway play The New Boy. It made its Broadway debut in 1894. So we may never know where Alfred E. Newman got his start, but all we know now is that he and Mad are one and the same. Okay, let's unpause. Uh, back to the special. An announcer tells us, Regular programming will not be seen at this time, so we may bring you the Mad Magazine TV special. And the, the title of the show is Illuminated in Neon Lights. Now, zooming to the building and now panning from window to window, uh, the segments that we're going to see in the show are revealed inside. Uh, these segments include the Automobile Manufacturer of the Year, the Academy Awards for Parents, Mad X Ravings, The Oddfather, which is, of course, a Godfather parody, a peek behind the scenes at a hospital, and now keep in mind, this is uh, an old transfer. It's very grainy. It's very hard to hear. I think it even only goes through the left audio channel if you ever catch this on YouTube with headphones. Uh, it says, and the kind of something you've learned to expect from Mad's usual gang of idiots. It's hard to hear because you see in the window uh, Spy vs. Spy and Don Martin characters and people screaming, so it really just kind of drowns out the announcer's voice. But I just wanted to bring out the fact that they use that phrase, Mad's usual gang of idiots. And this is a term of endearment that's been used for a very long time for the staff at Mad Magazine. We then get a Don Martin character sitting on a windowsill. Uh, he has a sandwich, he's about to fall, and the announcer then says, the Mad Magazine TV special is brought to you by... And then we get a long pause. Very long pause. Probably about eight seconds, I think I timed it as. And at first I'm going, what? You know, they try to pad this thing out. But no, this is where the sponsors' logos and names would probably be superimposed or read. If any were interested, of course, none were. So the pause ends and the character now falls in comedic fashion. So we fade to black, and now we open on our first segment entitled The Automobile Manufacturer of the Year. So when we open, we see a reporter who looks exactly like esteemed journalist Walter Cronkite introduce himself as Howard K. Bluntly. He's live in Detroit to interview the industrial tycoon Edsel Lemon, haha, who was recently named Mad's Auto Manufacturer of the Year. Now as we see hundreds of new cars rolling out of the plant, Bluntly assumes that business is doing well, but Lemon corrects him, saying, oh no, the cars are actually rolling into the plant to have their defects fixed. And the, the, we even get a shot here as a car rolls by, its wheel falls off. So, Bluntly is given this tour of the facility. We next get a look at the busy assembly line with workers and engineers just bumbling around. They're falling over railings, they're tripping into open hoods, and they're cracking windshields. We next see six men carry a bumper over to a car, ready to be attached, and Bluntly says, Oh, you know, I never knew a bumper was so heavy it took six men to carry it. 
And Lemon tells him, oh, it's actually a safety precaution. The bumpers are so brittle that if they dropped it, it would shatter into a million pieces. So we next cut to the accessory department, full of bored and sleeping designers. Lemon explains that this is where they came up with such innovations as power seat covers, electric ashtrays, and the Spiro Agnew dashboard clock. If you're a a big fan of The Simpsons, you probably remember when Milhouse was reading Mad Magazine and talking about how much they make fun of Spiro Agnew and how he must work there. And uh, that was not an exaggeration by the writers of The Simpsons. They really had a lot of fun with Spiro Agnew. So it's explained that, oh, people don't need these accessories. The dealers need them so they can sell $3,000 worth on every $2,000 car. And the two men next move on to another room. We see that there's a guy in a white lab coat sitting over a desk. He's looking down at a piece of paper through four magnifying glasses. He even has one of those jeweler's loops in his eyes. And bluntly asks, you know, is he working on another innovation here? Lemon says, oh no, he's checking the fine print on the warranty to make sure that anything that could go wrong is always the customer's fault. So, we can see that probably uh, General Motors was not going to step in and uh, give this special some money and sponsor it. You know, this is just not going to happen. So, Lemon takes Bluntly in a little yellow prototype car, it almost looks like a Volkswagen, has a giant wind-up key in the back, because of course this is still a Mad Magazine bit, there's tons of little details, too numerous to mention. And he goes to a test obstacle course, and we see that this course consists of a small hill that allows the car to roll down 500 feet. And Lemon says, well, if one of the cars can roll 500 feet without falling apart, it's good enough to go into production. So... He next takes bluntly to the safety research department, and they drive past this huge, modern-looking dome. And bluntly says, uh, you know, this is a beautiful-looking building here. And Lemon corrects him, saying, oh, no, that's the indoor golf course. The safety department is across the street. And we see this tiny, dilapidated shack, which, of course, begins to even fall apart when they're looking at it. We next cut to an auto worker named George, who's explaining the new invention of five more seatbelts which are just running across the entire car. Some are attached to the steering wheel, the engine, the trunk, and bluntly asks if they make the passengers safe. Lemon replies, Who cares about passengers? We're using them to hold the car together. And they walk away, and George lets go of one of the belts, causing, of course, the car to fall to pieces. Now, bluntly next asks what they plan on doing about pollution. Lemon tells him that they're following the lead of cigarette manufacturers and putting a warning sticker on the side of their cars. So we next cut to one of these labels on the back window of a car, and in fact it does say, Warning, breathing in auto exhaust fumes may be hazardous to your health. So as they drive back, Bluntly mentions to Lemon Henry Ford's idea of keeping car designs the same so they can only be sold for $300. And Lemon mentions, oh, you know, I have no idea who Henry Ford is, and after hearing about him, he says, oh no, no wonder why I've never heard of him. I don't associate with commie radicals. So as Lemon gives Bluntly a ride home, Bluntly mentions, you know, how car ads are deceptive, showing durable and dependable vehicles when he just witnessed the opposite. And as they approach a scene of the city full of gridlock traffic, Lemon says, it doesn't make any difference. There's nowhere to go anyway. And with that, Howard K. Bluntly signs off. And that ends this segment. So, yeah, I can see why car companies would not want to give any money to this show or be associated with it in any possible way. 
So from here, we cut to a Don Martin cartoon. I mentioned Don Martin earlier. Great longtime artist, legendary artist. Uh, best known for his work on Mad Magazine. Uh, if you've ever read Mad, he has the characters with kind of the long faces, the long noses. And he was best known for his crazy sounds, like he would write sploink, you know, things like that. So, just to set the scene for this cartoon, we see a bathtub with a little boy and a rubber duck, and a mother, along with the father, enter the bathroom. And as she says, it's time to get out and ready for bed, she removes the boy, which we now see is just a rubber inflatable toy. The duck now flies out of the tub and gives the lady a kiss, and her husband asks, don't you think you're spoiling that duck? Wah, wah. <laughs> so... Anyway, that moves us to our next segment called Mad X Ravings. And basically what this segment was going to do is give you a scene without words, and one part of the scene, all of a sudden, you were going to be able to see through the wall and see something hilarious going on the other side. So, for example, our first one, we open on a, a waiting room in a doctor's office. There's people in casts and bandages that are hurt, and they're waiting, and all of a sudden we see through the wall and there's the doctor practicing his putting skills. Uh, we next get a scene at a department store where this prim and proper lady drops a uh, slip into the suggestion box. We now look into the suggestion box and we see that it is just a paper shredder. In our next scene, we see a gas station with two pumps. One has super for 40 cents, the other regular for 27 cents. A car pulls up and gets a super gas for 40 cents, and we x-ray through the ground to see that both are coming from the same tank underneath. In our next scene, we see a, a passenger in a turbulent airplane looking out the window, very, very scared, and we pan to the front of the plane in the cockpit. Looking through it, we see that the pilot and co-pilot are making out with stewardesses up front. And in our final scene... We see a couple dining at a very fancy restaurant, and looking through the wall, we see a very dirty-looking chef, dirty clothes, uh, dropping all kinds of who-knows-what into a pot, and even killing a spider that was crawling up his shirt. So this next brings us to a segment of quick cartoon shorts. The first one opens up on a trailer camp, known as the Kaputnik Trailer Camp. Of course, they, they put that name in there. That's an inside joke. That's a... A reference to Dave Berg's work and, of course, Roger Kaputnik. One guy reports to the others about a better trailer camp down the road. So everyone jumps into their campers and RVs and they all pile out and leave. The last person left says, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> the next one, two men come across a flattened man in the middle of the street who was just evidently hit by a steamroller. And one says to the other, well, get him to the hospital, quick! and they fold him into a paper airplane and throw him into the hospital. And we fade to black. So that brings us to our next segment, the Academy Awards for Parents. This is very strange. Uh, we open on a city at night, we see moving spotlights, as an announcer welcomes viewers to the Academy Awards for Parents. Uh, they're being held at an apartment in the crowded living room of a Mr. and Mrs. Wilbur Nasal. Uh, the host explains that the parents will win a gold-plated statuette of a woman called a mommy. So he next introduces what he calls the nominees. And this isn't really planned out too well, but uh, basically you're in a crowded apartment. 
There's one man, he's the host, he's the one standing. Behind him is kind of a projection screen. He's going to introduce a category with the title of a video, and we will cut to it. So the very first segment here is Best Supporting Actress in a Teenager's Sloppy Room. And he introduces You Are Just Impossible, where we see this woman just scolding her son about not being his personal maid. The next one is Best Adaptation of an Original Getting Rid of the Kid for the Summer Routine. And this cuts to the video It's You Were Thinking Of, which we now see a woman in a fur coat hugging her son at the train station, saying how him leaving for camp hurts them more than it hurts him. And we next see two brutish counselors drag him away. And he says, you know, like, what if I hate camp? And she says, oh, you'll write us all about it when we're in Europe. The next nominee is Best Original Score in the Typical Coming Home Late for Supper's Song and Dance. And that goes to I Could Drop Dead for All You Care, which is a mother just guilting her really sad-looking son at the table. She's just ranting and raving, saying all these things like, you should be down on your hands and knees and being grateful for having such a devoted mother. We next go to special effect for you kids today have no respect for money category. In this clip is entitled upset. Who's upset? And we cut to this mother leading her son down a sidewalk. The son is just all in muddy clothes. And she's saying things like, you think I'm upset? You played football in your good school clothes. You think I'm upset? And the kid's saying, gee, mom, I knew you'd understand. But now the host tells us that the winner is the clip I get no help around here. And this is a, a teenage girl. She's busy on the phone while her mother is just angrily complaining, washing the dishes in the kitchen behind her. And so the host says goodbye. The parents file out of the apartment. Uh, it's mentioned they're hoping to get busy qualifying for next year's awards. And as he signs off, we see an angry boy walk over and stomp on his foot. So is that too edgy or crude to be shown on TV? I don't think so, considering, you know, All in the Family was on at this time. But maybe they thought it was just a little too disrespectful and making fun of parents. So from here, we open on another Don Martin short. This one features a man on a tiny deserted island, which features nothing but a single yellow flower. So he looks down, decides to pick it, but when he does, the island springs a leak from where he pulled it. So now as water gushes up, the entire island begins to sink. And everything goes under, except at the very end, only the flower is left floating at the surface. The end. <laughs> that was alright, I guess. So, we next cut to a scene of Tarzan doing his signature scream as he swings on a vine, leaving his treehouse. Now as he swings forward, he pauses in midair and he's passed on the other side, on a vine, someone swinging the opposite way, and this person is a very offensively drawn, like, tr tribal stereotype. And Tarzan then swings backwards to his house, where he posts a for sale sign out front. And this was kind of surprising to see. I, I know it was different times, but yeah, they could have definitely done without this. So we move on to a peek behind the scenes at a hospital. And this is very reminiscent of those double-page illustrations you would see in Mad Magazine of a building or a department store, and the idea is it was so small and detailed and there would be so many different things going on and you'd be seeing behind the scenes. So we open on a large scene of a hospital with all of the walls kind of cut away, allowing us to see in every room. So we're gonna pan and zoom around this scene for the entire segment. It's actually a very clever way 
of creating the, the experience of reading one of these in Mad Magazine for television. So we start as nurses rush into a room full of patients. We see a doctor and someone else in the hospital staff remark to one another that it's checkout time and those nurses are looking for tips. The doctor even says that some of the nurses are from other hospitals. Okay. Uh, zooming in on, on one room, we see that a man is in cardiac arrest and being worked on. It's told that he pressed the button to call for a nurse, and one actually showed up. That's why he had a heart attack. Uh, we pan over to the nursery, where the name tags for the babies were all mixed up. One of the nurses says to the other, Ah, oh, don't worry, the mothers won't know either. Cutting over to the lavatory, a nurse is very upset that the bathroom door is locked, saying that in hospitals, bathroom doors can't have locks. Another nurse nearby remarks that, oh, it takes all the fun out of walking in unexpectedly and embarrassing a patient. Like, really mean to nurses in this thing. Uh, next, we move to the operating room, where a new anesthesiologist tells the patient to drink a glass of whiskey and bite down on a bullet. One of the surgeons turns away and says, oh, I better go check his credentials. Panning over now to patients' beds, we see the nurses drape a sheet over a deceased man. One nurse says, oh, it's too bad he couldn't hold on for one more hour. And it's revealed that it's because they could have billed him for an extra day. At the next bed over, a doctor reprimands a nurse for letting the patient fall asleep when he's supposed to take medication at a very precise time. She apologizes and now the doctor orders for her to wake the man up so he can take his sleeping pills. Ha ha. Now at another nearby bed, the nurse tells the doctor, Oh, I gave the patient lunch and he just threw up. And the doctor says, Yeah, it's not unusual considering the food in this hospital. And he, he mentions, Oh, try feeding him intravenously. And she said, I did, and his vein threw up. So we cut up to the lobby. We see a man on the floor, lying down. He's in agony. He can barely talk. And one man asks, You know, why, after three days of this, can't he be admitted to the hospital? And a member of the hospital staff replies he was unable to tell them his Blue Cross number. Behind this scene, we see a man complaining to a lady behind the counter about his extremely long hospital bill, which contains charges for things like monogram stationery and a donation to a memorial pavilion that evidently was solicited from him while he was delirious in the recovery room. Uh, next to him... Another lady upset about her bill. She's complaining she was charged for a private room, even though her bed was in a corridor. And the man behind the counter argues back, it was the only bed in the corridor. And cutting to the kitchen, we see this filthy chef, very much like the one from the X-Ravings. Uh, he tells a cafeteria worker, oh, don't take out the garbage, because that's not garbage going out. That garbage is food coming in. And if you look at this trash can that this guy is trying to take out of the kitchen, it has things like a giant bird foot and a basketball, which is very strange. So from that moment, we pan back to the opening shot of the entire hospital floor, and we fade to black. Now, while I don't expect a lot of healthcare agencies to have been sponsoring a show like this back then, uh, it, it is interesting how, how biting it was with the healthcare industry. And really making fun of a lot of nurses and doctors as well. But yeah, this was uh, an interesting segment in the way that how they framed it and how they panned across. And the animation is very interesting to watch. Great execution of that idea of looking at one of these peek behind the scenes type of double pages. 
We next open on a classic feature of Mad Magazine, personal favorite of mine, Spy vs. Spy, the ongoing struggle between two pointy-faced adversaries, distinguishable only by their hats and jacket. One black, one white. Here, however, we see the two spies animated in color with beige-colored skin. Up to that point, they really only appeared in the black and white pages of the printed page, just as the original artist, Antonio Projias, drew them. Starting in Mad Magazine number 60, January 1961, and he drew them in Mad Magazine all the way up to 1987. Different artists took over the comic strip for a while, and since 1997, they've been drawn by Peter Cooper? Cooper? I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. But he has a very unique take on the characters, his own unique style. He draws them with very soft pastel lines, and he does draw them in full color. Now, in this Spy vs. Spy cartoon, we see a giant-sized mousetrap next to a small two-story brick house, kind of like a brick tower. And this is all within a fenced-in yard. The white spy, in his pajamas, leaves an envelope labeled Top Secret on the mousetrap. Then he walks into the house, and he goes up to the top floor. We see a little window. We see that it's a bedroom with a bed, and he goes to bed. Now the black spy sees this transpire. Of course, we get a little black question mark over his head, and he jumps the fence carrying a long stick. So he uses the stick to set off the mousetrap, then walks over to pick up the envelope. Uh, as he does, we see the white spy up in bed kick his feet forward, tipping the entire brick wall of his house over onto the black spy, crushing him with a flurry of black stars floating around, which I guess means that he's uh, knocked out. I don't think they ever really can die, even though they, they have some gruesome ends to some of these comic strips. And that's the end of the Spy vs. Spy. But it was, it was interesting to see it. Uh, it's definitely uh, better done in Mad TV, the earlier seasons of Mad TV. Like I said, they really try to make it connected to the magazine and had a lot of these animated segments. And it should also be noted that uh, Brisk Ice Tea also had some really cool claymation almost, Spy vs. Spy commercials, which are worth looking up. Now this brings us to the segment called The Odd Father. <laughs> Very much a Godfather parody. This is taken directly from Mad Magazine number 155, December 1972. The art was done by Mort Drucker, and the writer was Larry Siegel. And if you've ever seen the original page, you can, you can Google image search it. It's exactly what we're seeing here, only this is animated. And in color. So we start with Don Vito Minestrone, who they mention is played by Marlo Brandon, who is, of course, a clear parody of Marlon Brando's performance in The Godfather. Uh, it's interesting that they call him Marlo Brandon, because... They do, in the original Mad Magazine comic strip of this, call him Marlon Brando, but it's just misspelled. Maybe because it's being said and not read, it's better to just transpose some of the words because then the joke doesn't come across. So we see him dancing at the wedding in front of a crowd of characters, drawn in great detail. Like I said, this is Mort Drucker's work exactly. And in this scene, he mentions that he's talking with eight balls of cotton in his mouth. Next, a line of people privately meet with the Odd Father to pay their respects and make requests. The first man kisses his ring, he's doing all kinds of stuff, licking his left shoe, and asks for two finks to be rubbed out. And the Odd Father agrees, but says to swear on his mother's grave that he'll return the favor when asked. 
And the man says, well, my mother's alive. And the odd father says, well, remember that when I ask you for the favor. So the next man is upset that a movie producer won't give him the part that he wants. The odd father says, well, he'll break the producer's back. <laughs> it's just like, okay. So later we see the odd father is taken down by a very complicated and comical chain reaction that started with a purse thief. It's very long and complicated. You can go and check it out for yourself. But whatever it is, it's described to us and it's not shown. So all we see is him lying in the street. Uh, it's described as natural causes, at least by New York standards. But we later see the odd father, he's alive and mumbling, which they mention is how he always sounds. So later we cut to Micron Minestrone. This is the odd father's son, and he's visiting him in the hospital. Micron mentions how he believes in law and order, and his father tells him to leave, saying he has a dirty mouth. Micron gets so mad he tells his father he feels like killing him, and the odd father smiles back, saying that his boy's gonna be alright. So later we see Micron being forced into the family business. Micron refuses, saying that he wanted to be a governor or a senator, but he's told, oh, if you want to be that type of criminal, you have to work your way to the top. So we cut later to a parody of the famous restaurant scene from The Godfather. Micron nervously excuses himself from his table with Plotzo to uh, the gun room. Uh, I mean the men's room, as he puts it. He's very, very nervous. In the bathroom, he finds the gun that's left for him, and he tries to convince himself, you know, remain calm. Uh, he just plans to shoot Plotzo twice and calmly leave. So he exits, and we smash cut to him screaming and firing uncontrollably. Now, I, in watching this, I thought, okay, we're gonna cut to everybody else to see that, oh, he missed with all of his shots. Like, that was gonna be the joke. We've seen it a million times. But no, uh, we fade to the aftermath where a policeman and a detective remark that everyone in the restaurant died. And we see everybody dead, including Plotzo. And to be honest, this was shocking. I, I did not expect to see this kind of gruesome scene in this cartoon special. The cop mentions to the detective how everyone was shot except Plotzo. Uh, he evidently died of complications brought on by eating too much scongili, veal parmesan, and lasagna, which he calls natural causes. Now cutting back to the odd father in his hospital bed, he's told how Micron did a good job taking care of Plotzo. And the odd father is so proud he wants to have his gun bronzed. He then asks if Micron is in Sicily, waiting for the heat to die down, but he's told, oh no, he's in the bathroom waiting for his stomach to die down. We next cut to the James Conn parody, Cine, being followed to a toll booth by some of the Odd Father's men, and evidently they are there to protect him, but they're too late. And at least from a distance in this scene, we see him get fired upon. Uh, we then cut to his dead body, and he's riddled with smoking bullet holes. Again, did not expect to see this kind of stuff, but we find out Oh no, he wasn't shot by Linguini's men, he was shot by the toll collectors that were mad that Cinny tried to give them a 20. So from here we cut to the Odd Father, brokenhearted, speaking at a meeting of all the families. He explains how Cinny is dead and his other son, Micron, has been in exile in the bathroom for six months. You gotta get the, the word bathroom in there a few times. Uh, he pleads with everyone to stop fighting and destroying one another, and they agree. Although, some are not too enthused with the idea of now kissing the Odd Father on both cheeks. <laughs> one guy says to the other, Ah, you just have to kiss him, you don't have to marry him. From here we cut to the Odd Father picking tomatoes in his garden, 
and his grandson tells him to chase him, and the two start running around. And we fade to black. We then open on the Odd Father on the ground, this time he is dead from a heart attack, brought upon from chasing his grandson, and we find out that his last words were to get revenge against his little grandson. We see the little kid run off in the distance. That, that genuinely made me laugh. So from here, we see Linguini trying to take the Odd Father's place, but finding Micron back from his quote-unquote exile. As some of the men in the room notice that Micron is starting to look and even sound like his father, the Odd Father, his face then morphs into the Odd Father's face, and he too begins to talk with a mumbling voice. So he just morphs into the Marlon Brando character. So the new Odd Father begins to mumble a plan about going legit, getting into show business, and making a movie about themselves. Moviegoers and critics will love it, or else people will wait in line to see it, or else, and it'll win an Academy Award, or else. Yeah, just directly referencing the success of The Godfather. And as he says these things, we cut around the room to various men, grinning and nodding, and as he details the opening scene of his movie, we fade to black. And that ends the segment known as The Odd Father, and I apologize for those voices. So... With the screen still black, we get this jaunty 70s music that like you'd hear it in some sort of game show. And the announcer says, The Mad Magazine TV special has been brought by... And then once again, a long pause. And this is just because there, there were no sponsors here. So we're just hearing this music, staring at a black screen for a while. Like again, probably eight seconds. Now pulling back from the blackness, we see that it was the space of Alfred E. Newman's missing tooth on the billboard from a building that looks very close to the one in the opening shot. This time it doesn't have the, the neon lights at the top. Pulling back further, we see the entire building just as a wrecking ball hits it. In, inside the building's wreckage, the closing credits are superimposed on a wall that's left up. Now, if we look at these credits most notably, we see the names of William Gaines, the publisher of Mad Magazine, Albert B. Feldstein, who was the editor at that time, he actually took over after Harvey Kurtzman left. He was a, a longtime editor. And the names of many other artists from the magazine are in here as well, who inspired the segments. Like I mentioned, Mort Drucker, Al Jaffe, Don Martin, Dave Berg, there's others as well. And as the credits wind down, the announcer tells us, again, this is very hard to hear. Some of the words I couldn't make out, but basically telling us that this first collection of trash cannot in any way, shape, or form be interpreted as constructive programming. You know, that's just one great thing about Mad Magazine. Like I mentioned, the usual gang of idiots. Very self-deprecating. Just uh, one of the charming qualities of Mad as a magazine and comedy property. So the wrecking ball then goes in for a second hit, taking out what remained of the building, and we cut to black, then the logo for Focus Entertainment. And that is the end of the Mad Magazine TV special. Was it too edgy for TV? I guess... A lot of the, the jokes and references are pretty dated by now, but it is worth checking out, at least just for the nostalgic factor, especially if you're interested in Mad Magazine, if you like the segments like the Don Martin cartoons and Spy vs. Spy, it's definitely worth looking at it, because this is a 70s vintage Mad Magazine brought to life. It's great that they had done it, and it's too bad it didn't work out, because it would have been interesting to see what would have happened. This isn't the last time that Mad tried something in the video realm. 
uh, until, you know, Mad TV in the 90s, they actually did try to do what National Lampoon did. They had a movie called Up the Academy, which was directed by Iron Man's dad, Robert Downey Sr. But uh, it was so bad, evidently, that they even took their name off of it, try to disassociate themselves from this movie altogether. Although recently, I guess, it had been released on DVD with the mad name. They kind of owned it. But fortunately, their strength is their great magazine, which I love and collect to this day. And fortunately, that's still going strong all these years later. Well, that's pretty much going to do it for this episode of Hitting Play. You, listening, this, mad, themed, of, play, by, don't worry about it. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, what you worry, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at hittingplay. I am on Twitter. My name there is at mcandfriends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine. There my name is also mcandfriends, and there I do flip page cartoons and humorous animations. You can check my stuff out there. If you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, we'll give you a shout-out on the show. For Android users, we are also available to stream and or download on Stitcher. We can be found on TuneIn Radio and the Google Play Music app, so check us out there. And also, if you have a Roku device, you can download the TuneIn Radio channel, and you can set Hitting Play as a favorite, and right as these episodes are posted, you can stream them from your television. Well, I have been Scott, and this has been Hitting Play, and in keeping with the theme of Mad Magazine, we can't finish without doing the fold-in at the end. Thank you for listening to this special Mad Magazine-themed episode of Hitting Play Goodbye.